0: Black Lives Matter. Listeners to this podcast know that we pretty much stay on topic of agile, scrum, how to make the workplaces better, more humane. And you also know, if you have visited agilecoffee.com, that the mission of Agile Coffee is coaching, conversation, and community. And so, talking about Black Lives Matter, talking about systemic racism, talking about how privilege affects all of us is within the bounds of these conversations. In today's episode... At about the 42-minute mark, we address a topic related to diversity and justice and inclusion. And we recorded this episode in mid-July. Uh, it was after Ahmaud Arbery and Brianna Taylor and, and George Floyd. So that was certainly on the minds of Chris and Larry and Ben and myself as we were talking. And we mentioned some books. Since then, I've read... So You Want to Talk About Race by Ijeoma Oluo. Now I'm rereading it, and it's been helping me. I know that I need more practice talking and listening, and I'm going to fail many times, but we, in my opinion, need to have the courage to fail, to continue talking, to continue listening. This book and other resources have helped me in conversations within my family, within my circle of friends, within the community, and uh, just in general conversation. Since recording this episode, Jacob Blake was shot seven times in the back. Now, anybody that we see on television uh, getting shot, or we hear about, or read about, However we get our news, um, anybody should solicit questioning. Why did this person get shot? What was the reason that force was used in this manner? And it's disturbing to me. And um, I'm just going to leave it there for right now. I encourage you, if you want to continue the conversation uh, with me, reach out on Twitter at Agile Coffee. Um, otherwise, um, you know, engage with with us um, using the hashtag #TellAgileCoffee, and we'll um, we'll discuss that in an upcoming episode. Today's episode is is fun. It's a it's a throwback to uh, to the Lean Coffee. Uh, So we're getting back into the groove of the lean coffee model for the discussions. And we've got some great discussions today. As I said, Larry, Ben and Chris are joining me here in just a few minutes. Uh, Real quick, I wanted to just mention a few other things. First of all, coming up on September 17th and 18th, uh, we usually have the agile open Southern California uh, held at the Irvine um, University of California, Irvine campus. Um, This year, that is um, That event is is now over Zoom. So we're going to be doing a virtual open space for about a day and a half, um, all day on September 17th and then the morning of September 18th. You can find more information by going to agileopencalifornia.com and uh, clicking on the Southern California 2020 link there. And it's only 20 bucks $20 for a day and a half. agileopencalifornia.com. Real quick plug for Cardzinga, cardzinga.com. That's the website I put together that explains the rules of how to play Cardzinga. It's a variant of Nancy Von Schoenderwart's Lean Workflow Design game. You can play it with just a couple of decks of cards uh, with your teams. Um, you could do it in person. I've also made it so you could do it online. Uh, and it teaches... Things like empirical process control, inspection, adaptation, self-organization, and so on, in a in an interactive and hopefully a memorable and fun way. So I encourage you to check that out. Um, and finally, updates on the Agile Coffee website, AgileCoffee.com. You can now support us via. Patreon. There's a link there for supporting. So I do want to thank you in advance for anyone who gets on there early and starts uh, showing their gratitude here. I'm looking for other um, insights on how I could pay you back for your support. Yes, I know I'm, I've am i been doing these podcasts for 70 episodes now, 69, 70 episodes, and I've been contributing other things to the community, and I'm, I'm happy to do that. However, I feel that if you're Supporting me as a patron um, that I'd like to give you more. So any suggestions I'm open to, you can engage with me on the Patreon website. You'll see the link at the top of agilecoffee.com. Other exciting things coming up, which I will announce uh, in episode 70. But for now, I invite you to sit back, relax, or don't, and enjoy this fresh brew of Agile Coffee. Welcome back to the Agile Coffee Podcast. This is episode number 69, and I am celebrating with three of my best friends here on the show, as always. And back again, we have Ben Rodlitz. Hello, Ben. Hey, Vic. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Ben can be found on Twitter at Ben Rodlitz. Mr. Larry Lawhead.
1: Yeah, Vic, I'm really happy to see you again. It's uh, great to be here, great to be with this great group of people.
0: Even though we're seeing each other on Zoom, I, I feel good about that. Larry is on Twitter, at Larry Lawhead. And the world's greatest living ball player, Mr. Chris Herney.
2: <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Vic. Good to be here. Good to see everybody.
0: On Twitter, at Chris underscore Herney. Um, yeah, we're we're having fun. It is good to see you guys, too. Um I, I reached out to see who's available on which of the upcoming days. And pretty much everyone said all day, anytime. <laughs> that's how I'm feeling too. It's like, let's get together and, and, and talk agile. Um, I, I wanted to see if there's anything off the top of your heads, anything topical that you wanted to share before we jumped in. Uh,
2: I, I, you know, I have something that, you know, um, I know with the pandemic going on, we're all remote and uh, the nature of our work, at least lends uh, itself to us being able to be gainfully employed, uh, but I heard something the other day that surprised me. But I guess now it's not so surprising to a lot of people. I heard somebody at at my client say, "Oh, we we probably don't anticipate being back in the office even this time next year," and I was so, sort of shocked by that. Are you guys this time a- next year? Wow. Yeah, yeah. And and my wife's company, um, she's an HR director at a property management company. Her her their, their vp they report to said don't even have don't even think about any plans about returning to the office this year so at least for another you know four or five months
3: yeah I'm, yeah so here we are in july of 2020 yeah, yeah. yeah ben yeah i mean I'm, I'm i'm looking for the next the next big thing and i'm starting to say yes to anything in the bay area thinking i won't have to make a decision
2: to relocate yeah, yeah. For months and months and months it's really good you know what's funny about that ben is you know i'm sure i'm sure i'm not unlike you guys i get a ton of um kind of unsolicited cold calls from recruiters via email and i sometimes if one looked if you know one was far away geographically but it looked attractive i'd say hey i'd love to consider this as a remote um you know telecommuter and typically they kind of shy away from that but now i don't even put that message in my response anymore i'm right. like yeah let's have a discussion <laughs> you know? yeah yeah yeah. you, you don't actually, need to know where
3: i live yeah a few of the right. a few of the platforms now have
2: a like a remote type for the job so that they've actually added that they're willing good. to do that do you guys think i know this is kind of a cliche phrase but do you guys think once the pandemic is over that people like us will experience a new normal where there'll be a a whole new world of jobs open to us. Because oh, I think
0: it's happened already. Yeah, yeah. for sure. Uh-huh. I think uh, so many jobs we're not going to see come back. they're talking movie theaters, or mm-hmm. you know, specific kind of services that involve a lot of people in a, in the same place. They yeah. may not disappear completely, but they're not going to be coming back as as they had been in the past. In fact, if you talk about movie theaters, they've been waning
3: ever since the internet came on, and maybe yeah. before that. But um, well, think think mm. about think about if a company spends six, nine months functioning remotely, how willing are they to re-up their leases for expensive yeah. office
1: space? Yeah, yeah. that's it's a it. very good point. I've been thinking yeah. a lot about that.
0: It's true. Yeah, but so and- many so many new types of jobs. I mean, again, they haven't just been created in the age of COVID, but delivery services, as one point in particular, um, mm-hmm. has been growing. Uber Eats and the like has been growing over the years. But now, I mean that's going to be the new normal. I think you're going to yeah. be seeing more and more people just taking advantage of the services like that, whether it's food or, yeah. or other kind of services where people would come to your house or deliver something.
3: But also if we can position ourselves as being able to help you uh, deliver value with a dispersed workforce, yeah, which is something that yeah. we, that we can do that yeah. may be a benefit that we have going forward.
1: It's a good point, Ben. Yeah. Yeah. Actually, that's, actually a good point. Yeah. <laughs> actually. Actually. yeah, actually, like, <laughs> surprisingly, yeah. so we've got
0: uh, we've got a few topics here that we um, we introduced before we turned on the record button and we voted on the first one, Larry. This one's yours. So um, so you can kick it off. It says the weakness of one piece continuous flow.
1: Yeah, I don't me, know. yeah this is interesting. Well, I hope it's interesting for the rest of the world, but it is for me It really run through. Uh, I've been a big fan of One Piece continuous flow ever since I heard that on a a webinar from uh, Scrum, Inc., from Scrum, Scrum, uh, you know, Scrum, Inc., that's uh, Jeff Sutherland's organization. And I would really recommend it. Uh, They have a Scrum, Inc. um, uh, uh, library, and and there's a service called Scrum, Inc. Crime. I've I've been a member for a long time. You get a chance to hear those. Uh, podcasts from uh, Jeff Sutherland and other people from his organization that have been very helpful to me uh, personally. And one of the things that pops up a lot in their conversations is this idea of one piece continuous flowing. you can find it also on scrumplop.org. That's one of the uh, Scrum patterns that uh, this organization uh, promotes. Scrumplop, of course, is a uh, organization that vets, uh, peer reviews all uh, good ideas about how to help people with difficulties, uh, how to help Scrum masters especially. Uh, and it's in there. One piece continues I meaning The whole team focuses on one problem, one tat, one story. Once that story finished, they move on to the next story, and they move that through. And I've been a big proponent of this because I thought it helps focus. It helps cross uh, uh, cross training. Uh, it it uh, you see a lot of uh, pair programming uh, or um, a lot of uh, yeah uh, pair programming or. Um, other types of of interactions between developers, so it's really a great idea. However, in my book that I've been reading late recently, Yay, uh, Don Ryerson's book, *The Principles of uh, Product Development Flow*, uh, which is a it's a great book I, and I recommend. It. It's a little bit difficult, but I still recommend chewing through it. He talked to, uh, in what I read this more uh, this afternoon was uh, that's not always the case if you have one server he says in his example and that one server is doing all the work then uh things can pile up behind that yes and you can go through your work items faster that's true Uh, but if you have a what happens when you hit a blocker boom that whole queue shuts down now as a scrum master i would say okay quick team uh let's move on to the next item in the queue fine we could do that but you lose you lose um, uh, you, you lose uh, throughput through that. You lose uh, some of the the focus, some of the benefit of the, that one-piece continuous flow. So I think there are some limitations to one-piece continuous flow. That's what I wanted to submit them for our argument here, that uh, it's a great idea, but there are some limitations. And I want to discuss those limitations with you guys.
2: So I, I guess the first thing that jumps out to me is in the example that you provided where you have a – a group of people collaborating on something and they hit a blocker and then uh, you move on to something else. And it's, it's not perfect, obviously, but I think the flow of of the, sorry, the flow, the, the crux of, um, uh, these agile ideas is to not hit those blockers, right. Yeah. To form cross-functional teams that can answer all the questions and do all the work necessary to move it through. I, I certainly agree that if you had a, um, you know uh, a group of people collaborating who are very limited in the in the type of work they could do then you're bound to hit those types of blockers so i think it's important not just to have just throw a a a number of people at a problem but the right people the people with the skills to to not have those um impediments pop up yeah good good point
3: so so when i when i train i'll usually have two spots in the front of the room one which is the theory spot and one which is the real world spot (laughs) and and I'll I'll stand on one side and talk about here's you know especially if I'm teaching a certification class where I have to give them what the the, you know this is what it says and then over here this is what we found so over than what we found and I'm going to ask all three of you including you Vic have you ever and if so how many teams have you ever worked on this is I'm not a mob programming expert and I'm sure with mob programming the answer is always other than that, have you ever worked with a team that could take a single story and have everybody on the team work on that story? That's not been my
2: experience. Yeah, I, I, I agree with that, Ben. That's been um, that's been my experience as as well. But what I would say is, it doesn't mean we shouldn't try. <laughs> and, and I think if you try, what you come up with is, you know, let's say you have the optimal uh, Scrum team of seven to nine people, and you probably are not going to get seven people to work on one user story simultaneously, especially now. You know, with so uh, people distributed remotely, it's possible. But you you might get three people to work on one and four to work on another. And the three people working on one and the four working on another might go back to my earlier point: be comprised of the appropriate skills and access to tools and things like that to move it all the way to done. Um, yeah. You know, and, and and there are different techniques to, uh, you know, I've heard of different techniques uh, to get to pick the right, you know, people in a team to work on a certain story based on what the story is. Certain people might be stronger in some things than the other. So, um, you know, yeah, I, for for a single scrum team, it, I've never seen it in, in the field where the whole team of seven to nine people have been laser-focused on a single-user story. That,
0: well, That's the thing. You just said seven man. to nine, and I, I'm thinking of I had mm-hmm. cases where I had smaller teams, three, four, yeah. five. Mm-hmm. And going back to my time at, at this place, uh, SendGrid, when we were mm-hmm. trying to get email um, um, marketing... Products ready to go, or, or different parts of um, the workflow, the in, the email workflow. Um, we would pull. I, I wouldn't say all nighters, but some of the sprints were more actually felt like sprints we <laughs> were running. Mm-hmm. And in those times, we were talking a lot about swarming. And, and with some of the yeah. smaller teams, uh, I, I can't say for sure, but I, I have the feeling that you know at least one or two times they did it. But. Like you said, I think that's more the exception than the rule. Um, mm-hmm. Typically, even with those small teams, it's like they've each got their one story and they're working on it independently. Mm-hmm. Um, what I'm trying to remember is is whether they were working on, if if I'm not misremembering it, they were working on the same story, but they may have been working on maybe a, like an epic but different stories. They're breaking it up like that. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. But still, the goal of the sprint was very focused on yeah. on whatever it was. There. Yeah.
2: yeah. You know, I... I go ahead. Well, I was just going to say to Ben's point about the theory side and the reality side, and I think what, what I tend to see in reality is that sprints aren't I, – I shouldn't say typically, but what I've seen a lot is that sprints aren't always thematic. The in, yeah. <laughs> uh, sprints aren't always thematic in nature, right? The stories aren't always intrinsically related to deliver some – piece of functionality or or a set of functionality. It's more like an arbitrary collection of tasks and people just, you know, go work on them individually. And that certainly makes it much harder to to accomplish this type of, you know, um, singular focus that that Larry's talking about. So I think that's... Go ahead. No, no, go. I was just going to say, I think that's probably a good place to start is, right, have the team focused on on a shared understanding of a common goal rather than just this disjoint collection of little tasks that don't really roll up to value at the end of the sprint. Yeah. But right, you, yeah. you
3: just, you just introduced a topic we don't have on here, which is uh, Ben's epiphany on why I now believe in sprint goals. <laughs> oh yeah. Go ahead. <laughs>
1: oh yeah. And, Please, and, elaborate. And,
3: I, and I, and I, and I believe in sprint goals a priori, not after the fact. I, I've been very uncomfortable with things like sprint goals and in safe uh, PI objectives that were kind of aggregations after the fact for convenience, they seemed to me, and I didn't understand them. And what I've what I've started doing with sprinkles is to tell the the product owner prior to prioritizing the backlog for the um, refinement to think of a sprinkle. Mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm. And good.
3: and the way I do it, and I've, I've started doing this a lot now, is asking a question conversationally at the end of the next sprint when somebody asks you, how this? What'd you get done in the sprint?" What would you like to be able to say? And I and I don't think what you want to say is five disparate stories. I'd like you yeah. to say we got a lot of the login screen working, or we got mm. uh, we got a lot of this data um, extracted over here. And if you can put in words what you'd like to be able to say at the next sprint, now bring that back to the beginning of the sprint. Prioritize your backlog such that the the stories at the top are all. To that theme that you'd like to get done, and I never understood Sprint Goal as something you did at the end of Sprint Planning mm. to kind of put a wrapper around what you did. Yeah. Um, but rather now, now I do have the team. Just to be clear, I have the team validate the Sprint Goal at the end, so they do. They are the ones that help define the Sprint Goal. But but to to your point, Chris, if you can start the way back three weeks before the end of the Sprint, have the PO thinking about what would I like to get done in the next sprint qualitatively not quantitatively and and get the Mm -hmm. stories teed up that way I think we have a better chance of success
2: Ben that's that that, there's a lot of synergy between what you just said and something that I actually learned from you some time ago right Uh, (laughs) so um, I'm consistent that's yeah (laughs) You, you, (laughs) you, you talked about prioritizing um the backlog sort of thematically, or so so that it, you know um, things of uh, that deliver similar or part of the story are grouped together. And I think that's a great idea because I remember something that you said to me that I've, I've never actually practiced because it sometimes it comes across as like heresy to some of these command and control product manager, product managers, but I've always thought it was a fantastic idea. and what you said is, you, you you show the in, you show the backlog information radiator, Jira whatever it is on a screen. Forget about story points. Forget about all that stuff. Look at that. Go down from one through n. Draw a line where you think you can fit it in the sprint. And if you can draw that line. And that line, everything above that line is, again, this sort of thematic collection of, of, of common stories that deliver something valuable. I think that's that would be fantastic. Yeah. And that that might play into what Larry's talking about, where, OK, maybe not maybe not the entire team is 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 focused on one thing at the task level in some ALM tool but at least they all have a common understanding of a singular goal that they intend to deliver at the end. And in that sense, they'll be working in in a very cohesive way.
1: That's interesting. Go Go ahead. ahead. No, no, no. Go ahead, Larry. Well, I've been uh, working with our teams, uh, the teams that I'm now um, working with. Yeah. The teams that I'm now working with, uh, I've over the last two uh, uh, sprint planning meetings, I've um, asked them to set a sprinkle. We, we're using ADO, uh, Azure DevOps, and there's a um, there's an app you can download for it's it a sprinkle. And so I downloaded it. We explained the reasons for a sprinkle, and I've noticed the quality of our sprints have now changed, we've gotten more focused because of that simple little app that we downloaded into ADO. Uh, and they do, they are setting their sprinkles. Uh, the last sprint, one team didn't, and the other team did. And it's interesting, the team that set a goal was a lot more focused and had a more strategic delivery than the team that did it. Now, having said that, I gotta give them some credit. The team that didn't well, created a sprint goal this time, and we're, we're off to a good start. But it was interesting to watch that happen. <clears throat> it's an es-
3: esoteric point, but it goes right to the manifesto, which, which is, you know, uh, rather than following a plan. And that was when I finally believed, started believing in PI objectives. I still don't totally believe, believe in them in SAFE. But, but the, the thing that got me was, if you can meet the objective, so, so you, know, you know my mantra about you know SAFE or scaling is just scrum on steroids, right? So if you can meet a sprinkle without doing the stories that were predicted two weeks ago, more power to you. That doesn't happen that often. But if you then expand it, to if you can meet the feature, if you can meet the PI objective without doing the exact stories that you came up with at the beginning, that's what you should be trying to do. Yeah. So qualitatively, I've, I've flipped, I've flipped over to to believing them. Quantitatively, I still have a lot of problems. Yeah,
0: and that's and that's in the Scrum Guide too. At least the last couple of iterations of the Scrum Guide, there's a big focus on the uh, the sprint goal, meaning that you know the team is committing to the uh, every person on the team is committing to the goals of the team and that includes the sprint goal doesn't mean you're committing to getting all the stories done you're not committing to stories Um, and they're doing whatever it takes as a team to meet that goal which could mean as you just said um, you know changing stories around moving dropping a story out adding a story whatever it is so being able to be flexible is is pretty powerful there
3: now the, the 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 reality spot versus the ideal spot. That's the idea, ideal. In in the, in the reality, what it usually means is accepting a story that isn't completely done because it met the value. I mean, I, I don't I don't usually see a whole goal changing. I don't see stories radically changing, but I do see within a story. If you use that mentality of the sprint right. goal, saying, you know, product owner, here's what you wanted. We've done this. I think that this was the intent that you had. Can we agree that we did what you wanted, or can we agree that this was really two stories now that we've gotten into it can we and that that is is kind of an adjunct to that sprint goal idea that here's the value you wanted. not forget about what the as a so that
1: yeah yeah
3: nomenclature, but here's what you wanted. Can we work with that? I think that's a great way to look at it, and just to add to it, in case we ever find anybody who's interested in outcomes over outputs um <laughs> The idea of every day looking at your sprint goal, your sprint plan, and saying, how are we doing at meeting that, which leads to walking the wall, starts getting to what Chris was saying, starts getting you thinking about
2: how do we swarm at the more,
3: at the things at the top of the list and not at the bottom. So there are ways.
2: Uh, Hey, real quick, I know we're running out of time, but I just want to bring it back around to, to Larry's. First point, because I'm interested in the answer, Larry. What is the chief criticism of that sort of singular focus for the whole team on on, on one, yeah, Reiner- uh, one Reiner- endeavor? Yeah, yeah what's Reiner-
1: the Reinerson's men- mentions it? And I thought I would just throw it out there. It's his. Um, uh, it's called uh, uh, the queuing theory number seven about. Um, um, in in where, whereas, if you have everybody focused on one thing. And this, the whole team focusing on one story, and that one story fits a blocker. It can't go on. Then you have to switch your entire team to the next story. There's no, mm-hmm. there's no natural flow from story yeah. to story. And so, yes, you could do that, but you're still going to lose a little bit in that transition, as we all mm-hmm. know. Uh, task are switching uh, switching tasks is is not something that the human brain does easily.
2: <clears throat> I. I see. I, I see the logic in that because if if it's a situation where the entire team can't resolve the impediment, perhaps it's an external dependency or something like that, and that goes into lean and waste, right? Because now you've cre- now you've just created inventory. Right? Yeah. Exactly. Now you have something partially finished that you can't get ROI on. Yeah.
1: Does the, does
2: the
0: Reinertson book, does he go into um, any of the roots of Lean? Does he talk about Henry Ford? I'm just thinking of like one piece continuous flow. Wasn't that like a, a Ford um, I revolution? with with yeah I, with I, the... I
1: hate, uh, Reinertson doesn't mention it, but I believe that uh, it is something that uh, Sutherland mentions, if I'm not mistaken.
0: What do you call um, it? The, um, the assembly line, right?
1: Yeah, and, and, and I really gained a lot by this mentality. And if I can just throw this in here real quick. That say one piece continues flow. Say if that's really possible or not possible. You know, like Ben said, the theory over against practicality, I've never been able to encourage a team or get a team to focus on one story at a time either. True. Mm-hmm. However, by bringing that up to the team and encouraging them to focus on that one story, I've seen a lot of very positive things happen. So you don't, you're not going to hit it maybe, but working toward that goal helps the team think in regards to, hey, I got to share my knowledge. Hey, we've got to um, we got to help these Q8 people out. So you got a whole the the team focus on us getting this thing across the finish mm-hmm. line, getting the uh, getting the um, fulfilling the acceptance criteria is prime our primary goal. And that, even though we've never gotten there, has helped us emphasize these points
3: and let's not let's not be overly prescriptive if a team is constantly getting 80 85% of their stories yeah, you know absolutely. done and however they're doing it then you know back off Boogaloo. Yeah.
0: Yeah. <laughs> i it's it, two ringo references <laughs> and two podcasts ben nice job
2: <laughs> i i'm I, i'm trying my best to be, get my name as synonymous with symptoms versus problems as ben is with outcomes okay. and outputs and so uh i would say this right if if you have a team an entire team who is continuously coming up upon impediments that they can't go any further and now they have to figure out procedurally how to deal with that yes. i would say figure you know figuring out how to deal with that is is, is masking a symptom the problem is why do we keep having these impediments? Is there, some, is there some skill on this team that's lacking that we can only take a story so far and, and hit a roadblock? So that's where I would look, right, to increase. Rather than Again, rather than procedurally figure out how to deal with impediments, let's not have impediments. Yeah, good point.
0: How about you, listeners? What do you think? Uh, use the hashtag on Twitter, tell Agile Coffee, and join the conversation with us. Next topic up, Chris, is yours. It says, how much maturity is necessary at the team level before going into some kind of a scaling endeavor?
2: Yeah, sure. So uh, so I've um, I recently heard some proponents of SAFE um, suggest ju- that an organization jump directly into scaling. And I've always been of the mindset that you cannot scale what you haven't got. <laughs> and if you're trying to scale something that individual teams do, in this case, deliver working valuable software through agile approaches, you know, um, the teams, the teams at the individual team level ought to know how to do that before you endeavor to scale that. Yeah. And so I, I'm confused by the, the sentiment that an organization goes out and purchases safe and jumps right into that day one.
1: Yeah.
2: Uh, and since we have a safe uh, uh, expert on board here, Larry, what do you think? Well, Ben's
1: Hey, what's Ben? Been part of the experience. Yeah, what am I? Well, chop, no, no, no. Safe, I, chopped
2: ben, liver? No, because you, look, Ben, you've you've done a poor job in uh, marketing yourself <laughs> as a safe expert. You need to get up in front of Agile Socal and give a talk. <laughs> on it.
0: Actually, he has.
2: <laughs> yes, on and safe? I've probably I've probably taught <laughs> more safe classes than all of you three put together. Yes, I, I wait, can most likely. Wait, wait, Ben, you you did a talk on safe at Agile Socal.
3: I probably included it in about three of my oh, four God. Agile SoCal talks, yeah.
2: but but no, Larry is you know this
3: is the recency bias, right? Yeah, so yeah, so yes, I, exactly. I, yeah, Larry did it last.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I'm the newest convert, if you will. Yeah,
3: and I'm an unconvert.
0: <laughs> and, and and I just wanted to drop actually in a sentence. That's all. <laughs>
2: Okay so let's I, I think yeah this let's, is a simple this is
3: really simple. I mean I I I can't I I am I'm, I'm not even sure I've seen anything in SAFe that says if you're not comfortable with how well you're doing scrum at the team level you should you should scale I, I'm not <laughs> sure they're even saying
2: that.
1: No I don't uh, think it exists. Yeah. Uh,
2: it's it's funny because when I when I kind of heard that I thought I wonder what like Leffingwell would say. I'm sure he wouldn't sign on uh, on for that statement. Now
3: there's another. This is another one of the two sides of the room, and this is where it comes up uh, absolute. When I'm teaching um, a safe class, because I am a safe SPC, by the way, uh, (laughs) (laughs) um, I am not a huge fan of every element of safe's training of scrum. I, I, there are things in the, in the scrum parts of the safe training that I will definitely use two sides of the room saying, here's what safe says in terms of scrum. And if there's a question on your, you know, on your certification exam, you better answer it this way. But let me tell you what I've seen. Um, but I, I, I would be shocked if anybody at safe said, if you're not very good at scrum, you should still try to implement yeah. full safe that just sounds very surprising to me chris now
2: now, now ben going back to your theory versus reality or may, maybe in this case it's perception versus reality yeah. would you agree that there is a perception on the part of large enterprises that safe is something you can simply buy and install
1: yeah
3: i i think it is if it's sold incorrectly i don't Here think it's the i don't think it's the enterprise's fault I think if you look at the S curve of the implementation of safe, I think if you really looked at it, you could infer that you need to do things in the right order and you need to have the right levels. There's nothing in that, in that path to safe agility that says explicitly by here, you better darn well know what you're doing Mm -hmm. at the team level. But anybody I've heard talk about it, certainly when I teach it in, in in the classes I've taken, um, if you if you don't know what's going on at the bottom level and it's not working, it makes yeah. absolutely no sense to do it. Now there's the, the Craig Larman question, which is do you even need to do it? I yeah. mean I've been at the level of um, you should hold off on safe until you absolutely need it. When I was at at, at Chevron, um, we did a uh, we had a PI planning, and that was set up before I I joined the team. And um, I was told when the PI planning was and nothing else had been decided. And it was inappropriate for that group to be doing it. And at the at the PI planning, after two days, they wound up nine teams, 100 people. They had a total of four dependencies because there was no reason for this group to be getting together and flying in and doing that. And uh, I did a postmortem. I actually did a class on on PI planning and because about it. And I don't know if I was successful or not, but at the end of the class, they decided to cancel their next PI planning until they restructured their their organization. Mm-hmm. Now I looked at that as a positive that yeah. I actually convinced them. I didn't convince them. I just gave them, here's why you should be doing safe and PI planning. And 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 I should not, you know, especially PI planning, there are really good things that can happen to that if, you, if you're ready for it, and if you do it right. Yeah. But, but when you're not right and you start with the, Uh, hypothesis that we're doing it and how do we do it that's terrible and
2: and I admitted at the beginning of this um, that I didn't know if this was a safe specific question or a scaling specific question now my experiences with less maybe don't really resonate with this because to your point right Larman's whole point is don't scale until you have to, and what lesson tends to accomplish is to get you to a point where you don't have to, right? Yeah, it's all descaling. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Exactly. But Scrum of Scrum seems to be the same thing to me, right? Where you 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 can't you can't you you can't implement a a, an effective Scrum of Scrum's environment unless the individual teams know how to do Scrum, right? Right?
1: Yeah, they're very vocal about that, by the way. There's no way you can scale bad Scrum. You do not want to do that. Yeah, well, I
0: can't think of any. I can't think yeah. of any framework or process that is a like commercial off the shelf. Uh, yeah. You could just plug it in. Yeah. Look,
3: the thing. You know, we. I was really lucky over a decade ago when I took my CSM training from Michael James that he. Was insistent that we understood why we were doing everything, and that still so resonated with me because of some other things that I was doing. And and you you need to understand the why here. My, and my last posting, um, it this had this wasn't specific to scaling, but I, but Chris, I would ask it for scaling the same way. I said to them at the beginning of when I got there, I said, in three months, somebody's going to ask you, "How did I do? Yeah, how am I doing?" Mm-hmm. And what I want you to do is finish this. Ben did a great job because what are the two, one, two, or three things you'd like to be able to say in three months mm-hmm. um, that will make you feel like we did a good job? And that'll kind of, you know, that was a different way of asking what's success look like or all yeah. those other coachy coach talk things that we do. Yeah. And it's the same with scaling. You know, you have these teams when we get to the end, when we get, you know, when we do our next PI planning, what would you like to say at the end of next PI planning that makes you think we did a good job. I was, I've been very unsuccessful every place I've been to get them at the end of three months to go back and assess the PI planning they did before. Yeah. You know, I was, I was very, um, uh, uh, not antagonistic, argumentative. Like adamant. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I just said, I, I, we had an open space at Cox automotive and I Mm -hmm. said, PI planning is a waste of time want our discussion to be how would you agree or disagree with that because i was looking Mm. at metrics i still don't know metrics at dealer.com the first place i did pi planning we had 125 people for two days that's a quarter of a million dollars yeah Yeah. right what's your roi on that quarter million dollars or could you do it by monthly rolling um uh uh, yeah rolling planning instead of getting everybody in doing all yeah yeah and it's you
2: know and and asking the question'm It's probably you know it's rhetorical right I've, I probably knew the answer before uh, posing it I just wanted to get people's thoughts on it because you know ben I, I'm of the same frame of mind as you I think that this question should be uh, ended in like five seconds you can't scale crappy agile yeah, you can't yeah. or you can't scale what you haven't got right so yeah um, and I don't but, think you need to be argumentative with that I mean I think yeah, it, it's it,
3: it, I mean I think that you can very positively say you know i want the team i mean if you think about safe being fractal scrum right i mean everything in everything in, in safe at the program level is just a larger time frame or a larger group at the, than the team level then then i think it becomes a very interesting easy discussion to say if we can get, get this working down here and this stuff is going to make sense. If we know how to write, pro, write stories, we know how to describe our requirements at the team level, then maybe we can require them to you
1: know, discuss it yeah. at this level. Yeah. You know, what I wanted to say, Chris, is uh, a lot of times, and this may be the reason why this even came up at the company you're at right now, is uh, people want to buy their way to agility. Yeah, uh, very, very especially good. Especially if you're under pressure or you feel the pre- yeah, you mm-hmm. feel competition. Uh, I'm working for a company now, and I think it's, a, it's an amazing thing. They feel the pressure of, uh, of being digital. They feel the pressure of being innovative. And because of that, they're responding to that uh, really quite well. So I, I think there is no way of buying your way into, uh, into yeah. some kind of agility. You have to get your groundwork set properly and then work your way toward it. So that may be an interesting conversation to pursue. You're, Why do we want to even pursue agility at the, in the first place?
2: You're really depressing me, Larry. Now I can't buy I can't buy my way into heaven and now I can't buy my way into agile. Yeah, it's horrible. What what can I buy my way into? I don't
0: know. <laughs> <laughs> it's a family-friendly show otherwise I might tell you where you can buy your way into. <laughs> <laughs> All right, uh, great topic. Thank you, and great discussion, guys. Um, yeah, that's the next. It, it's one of those things at- that it to me, likewise, it
3: sounded <laughs> agile coach as pimp. <laughs> <laughs>
2: oh, <perfect>. oh, boy.
3: <laughs>
0: All right, we got a few more topics. Let's uh, let's see. We have Ben. This one's yours. Um, what can what can we affect? Oh, you better read this for me. Yeah, uh, no,
3: I no. Please don't make me read it because I reread it and it, it was not grammatically correct. <laughs> but basically, so it's like
0: thing. how do coaches – how can coaches get involved in kind of building up the industry's diversity, equity, and inclusion, right?
3: Yeah, yeah, yeah. And let me just tell you where that came from. I just th- – this came from just having finished listening to a book on tape called The Sword and the Shield. And it was an interesting story about comparisons in contract and contrasts between Malcolm X and – um, uh, Martin Luther King at the start of the civil rights and I had a very I had a very fixed version of where each of them came from they were not very close and the author's point was that's most people's view and it talked about that and, and it's a very very interesting book a lot of good stuff and with John Lewis just passing away a day or two ago um, he was in the book too about that but the thing that struck me from the very beginning the thing that struck me from the very beginning was um, think about how long ago World War One was, right? You know, you, you just think about how ancient World War One was. Well, things like the Voting Rights Act and the Civil Rights Act were closer to World War One than today. Okay, so the the thing that struck me was we can't legislate our way into the out of the issues that we're having, and. And just as a, as a person who's reading this, I'm very frustrated that, oh, my gosh, it's been 50, 60 years. Is that right? 60 years since that legislation has been passed. And things are still not anywhere near where they need to be. So I, as an individual, have things to work with. But also we as a community, I mean, I think we're very smart people on working with stuff. And by the way, this could be a very short discussion because I have no idea what the mm-hmm. answer to it is. But this is just a way of saying I'm frustrated professionally. Individually, there are
2: venues for me, there are avenues for me. But professionally, what can we be doing? Yeah, it's uh, Ben. It's I would, one thing I would say is I don't, I never thought I would be involved in an agile discussion where Malcolm X was brought up, but uh, I'm pleasantly surprised. I'll just give uh, a little admission: Malcolm X is is long been a hero of mine. I read. Uh, you know, his and Alex Haley's book when I was a teenager. Wow. And uh, I've probably read that book five or six times. Uh, the autobiography throughout my, of Malcolm X. Yeah, the autobiography of Malcolm X, him and Al- Alex, as told to Alex Haley. Um, yeah. I've probably read that book five or six times in my adult life, and it's just it's fascinating. The Spike Lee movie was great as well. Um, There's a lot of good documentaries on the guy. And the thing, the reason why he's a hero of mine is obviously I can't empathize with his life experiences and what he went through and what his family went through and things like that. But what was super impressive to me about him is his lifelong journey as a as a continuous learner. I mean, this guy evolved so many times, even within the even within the short span of his life embroiled in the civil rights movement. He evolved like where he started with his introduction to, to the nation of Islam to where he ended up when he died. He was a dramatically different person, yep. always learning, always evolving. And I think that's something that we can um, embrace as as uh, agile practitioners, you know. Um, but and something uh, I didn't realize was how much
3: Martin Luther King evolved
2: after Malcolm X's death. And I, and, had, yeah. I had no idea that. And I don't know much about, you know, probably a, a, if I'm this interested in Malcolm X, I probably should educate myself more on Martin Luther King, uh, Jr. But I, I, just I don't know much about him other than the kind of basic things that everybody knows. But, uh, but I, you know, I think I, uh, to to your point, I think in this industry, I've been lucky enough to work at a lot of really kind of these hip, progressive, new startup companies that hire a lot of really young people, and I am starting to see that diversity. Um, come come in uh, probably not anywhere near um, you know where it needs to be uh, you know I'm seeing a lot more women and I'm seeing a lot more different ethnicities uh, coming into the software development field I'm even seeing a lot of people who were not like traditionally taught through a computer science curriculum at a college a lot of hobbyist programmers you know, uh, you know I, I was recently working with a guy who was a professional skateboarder who taught himself you know, how to, how to write code. And now he was working, uh, you know, on a pretty high profile, um, uh, mobile application. So I think there's hope. I think it's, I think it's starting to happen. Um, but to your point, I mean, I, I guess I've never really thought about what I can actively do as an individual to kind of promote, um, diversity in this field, but I'll bet you, I'll bet you Colleen would have a great answer for this. Yeah. I, I can yeah. tell you
3: from experience and it was not with the intent of diversity I've always been a big proponent of having a good coaches room having a good mm-hmm. community of practice yeah, and, and at dealer.com two two people who were interested in becoming scrum masters who I helped you know kind of get moved down their path who turned out to be great additions to our team one came out of customer service one came out of HR uh, neither of them had technical background, but I mean, the HR person talk about the soft skills, the empathy elements that, that we could use. You know, those of us who are technical and came into Scrum Mastering. Mm-hmm. But, you know, also when we, we're talking about dealing with conflict, take a customer service guy who gets yelled at because the lifeblood of a car dealership was their our tool and it went down for an hour and he's got to talk them off the ledge uh you think maybe he could deal with a little interpersonal problem on a scrum team yeah. so we talk about equity and inclusion to help people get into where they need to be but it's more than that there's a benefit to having them on the team to having those different points of view those different ways of thinking it's not it's not a one-way street I don't think we should think of it as being doing anybody any favors i think we're helping ourselves as well too
1: yeah. You know, um, the, the Josh, uh, Josh uh, Bob Galen, and Josh Anderson talked about something similar in the uh, Metacast a while oh. ago, and uh, they had a real heart-to-heart conversation <clears throat> that spoke deeply to me. Yeah. Uh, and so, what I've done uh, since then is uh, inform myself first of all about the problem. So I read a book uh, that uh, was uh, was number one on, on Amazon at the time, or was closely uh, number one, is quite Fragility. I thought, okay, I'm going to wrestle this problem down because I grew up in a small town in the Midwest and everybody was white. Nobody was it, it, you know. And so for me, it was all just kind of a natural thing to be in all all, a a Caucasian environment. And I thought, yeah, I don't have any prejudice. Well, reading this book really – it opened my eyes to see that it's the system that's prejudiced and I've been part of that system And so what is my part in that system so I had to ask myself some severe very um, heart. I had a heart to heart conversation with myself about this and it helped me to become aware of of certain things and the book does give you a very clear some clear guidance at the end of it but Bob and and, uh, Josh in the MediCast talked about Giving discounts to uh, minorities and women that want to uh, be, become scrum masters and opening up opportunities to them uh, that you would normally not think about. But I think if if we are out of balance, and we are, uh, and that's what one of the things in this uh, white fragility book has helped me understand is that society in the united states is out of balance and probably other parts of the world as well then we have to bring it back in balance that means we have to help that which is on balance a little bit more than the other part that's not
0: um i'll list that book Uh, i also picked up this book here um so you want to talk about race yeah i think the more that we um we just become familiar with it so that we are understanding of what privilege is and, and how, how it affects, I mean, you're looking at the four of us are basically four old white guys, you know, and I think that <laughs> we could pretty much run a line through most, um, most of, uh, a very big swath, I should say, of, of the agile coaching, uh, industry. And, and, and you're going to cover a lot of, um, you're not going to see a lot of diversity and, and thank yeah. you for this topic. Um, by the way, Ben, this yeah. is great. Um, my commitment here is that on the very next podcast um, we will have at least some parody in gender, uh, and and Ben, if you want to come along for that ride, I'll, I'll prove it to you then. But um, <laughs> but I just wanted to thank you guys for for this topic, and and Ben, I think you had something you were going to say.
3: You know, we could we could make a two or three podcasts just on this topic, but I think yeah. this is a good intro to what we. Yeah.
2: What I was interested in. Thank you for all sharing. And uh, Larry, uh, thanks for reminding me. I I heard about that book, The the White Fragility, uh, that I I wanted to read. And so I'm going to go on after this. I'm going to go on Amazon and buy it. I I would also say if you want a a good follow on Twitter about inclusion and diversity from not only a female point of view, but from also, you know, for everybody, you know, uh, uh, April Wenzel. Do you guys know who she is? She's the compassionate coder. Um, she's down in San Diego. Her name is April. Last name is Wenzel W E N S E L. I think her Twitter handle is something like Compassionate Coding or Compassionate Coder. Yeah, get it to Vic and he'll put it on the notes. Yeah. That's uh she's a great follower on Twitter for this kind of stuff. That's
0: great. And also the um the Women in Agile uh movement, they have women in oh, yeah. Um they're doing some really um fantastic things that we should talk about before
1: long. Yeah, this is great. Yeah.
2: And by the way, I didn't, I didn't mention Colleen as having a great opinion on this just because she's a woman. I just feel like this type of subject matter, that's like right up her well, alley. It, that's what really gets her fired up. So, yeah. Yeah.
0: Fantastic. Well, it looks like the last topic then of the day, uh, Larry, this is going to be yours too. How well do you understand the world of your product owners?
1: Yeah. Oh, that, that is, a, this has kept me busy quite a bit mentally in the last couple of weeks or a few weeks now. Um, I'm, at, I'm working at a great company, uh, you know, transitioning off Rocket9. I, uh, I moved from a, a wonderful team to a wonderful company. I think that's a, that's kind of a miracle in itself. But uh, I've noticed I've been working a lot with the business of the PMO and with product owners. And one of our goals is to create a strong product owner community. And if you were to ask me, you know what are the top five challenges of a scrum master I could come up with stuff. I could come up with more than five but top five would not be difficult for me to to communicate but if you were to ask me what are the top five challenges of your product owner I would come up with some stupid thing like well I, uh, priorities and prioritizing the backlog I don't know networking with people the right kind of people getting the right kind of input well but that's kind of uh, that's kind of neutral it doesn't really step into their life mm-hmm. and so the more I' work with this PMO from whom I believe the product owners are going to come, they have a whole world of other problems that don't even have anything to do with the backlog. How do you, how do you budget your, um, how do you budget your, your, uh, your initiative? Um, how do you plan over a one year period? Good what? plan over a one year period. Well, that is their problem domain. You can't say, well, guess what guys, you don't need to plan over one your horizon we, we just got to get this done two weeks at a time that's not an answer for them because they're under a lot of pressure from vice presidents and other people uh to come to have this information as a matter of fact the PMR i'm working with had a presentation to uh that they had to give to the board of directors now put this put this in your head for a minute you're standing in front of the board of directors and they're going to say how much is this going to cost, and when is this going to be done? You're going to say, well, I'm not sure how much it's going to cost, and, well, we'll let you know when it's done. Yeah. What kind of response are you going to get?
2: Mm-hmm. It's, it's yeah, it's a, it's a difficult problem. I, I don't empathize being a product owner because in a lot of cases – you're almost being for it, in a lot of cases when the organization or the teams are professing to embrace these agile values and principles from a top down perspective, the product owners almost being asked to be hypocritical, right? If we embrace these agile values and principles and someone says how much and how, how much and how long, or, or what's the roadmap for the next two years? Yeah. That's, that's, in direct conflict with what you know, we're we're trying to do here, right? I mean, we don't know what's going to be important to the customers in two years, yet we're calling our product owners out on the carpet to answer those questions.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, the whole—that's th- the whole idea of, of delivering small pieces of valuable software in short iterations and getting feedback on it, because mm-hmm. we just don't know what the end state of this thing is. Go- this system that we're building is going to look like and we're going and we're leaning heavily on the customer to 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 drive us in the right direction by giving us feedback all the time and then but then we go to the product owner and we're asking him to make these really long-term predictions yeah um, mm-hmm. and 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 then we're again we're we're reading about in any sort of agile publication and we're hearing coaches talk about the importance of feedback from the customer and then we're not talking to the customer. We're asking the product yep. owner to be a proxy for the customer and uh, make predictions on behalf of the customer. So it's it's a tough it's a tough spot. And I to your point, I think it's probably the most ignored role in in in, in any kind of training and yeah. and things like that. Um, I really like uh, from product ownership perspective Roman Pickler's stuff. So he's got some good books. Um, on product road mapping in particular, I don't know if you guys have read Roman Pickler's stuff. And Strategize is a good book by him.
3: The important part is the is the education with the with the leadership and with the product the product group. But at, at Chevron, we called it the B word, which was balanced. We needed to strike a balance between being thoroughly agile and between and understanding the company can't run itself two weeks at a time. Right. Yes. Exactly. You know? yeah. So, so we need to help them understand what the roadmap is, but we need to have them agree with us as to what that roadmap means. Yes. And and, and one of the one of the things that seems to resonate with product folks, interestingly, I found that when you call somebody a product owner, they're all over the map as to where they are within the company. Some yeah. companies have embedded product owners at the team level, which, of course, you know. It's, Craig and Craig Larman and, and Les would say is absolutely anti-scrum guy. But but a lot of implementations have product owners down at the team level, and some have product owners who are really more at the program level and are just yeah. dropping in on the teams to help them with that. And we need to be um, adaptive enough to work with whatever they give us in, in terms of that. But, but one message that seems to resonate with with leaders, there's the snotty, there's the snotty understanding, which is, well, how do I know what I'm going to get and what I'm going to get it now? I used to know that. And, and, you know, the snotty answer is, well, how'd that work for you before? <laughs> because it, yeah, it probably exactly. didn't. Yeah, exactly. But, but a thing that, that, that they understand and depending on how you want to frame it is do you product people get smarter? Yes. Do you learn things? And if you do, would you like to create, To work collaboratively and cooperatively in a a framework where we can insinuate what you learn with minimal um, uh, impact on the the flow of going forward. In other words, if you want us to do a ton of upfront planning and do this, then you're going to have change control boards and big votes on whether we should do the things that, because you've learned, are the right things to do. Mm-hmm. Or can we come up with a way where we're iteratively looking at what we're doing and changing the order we're doing things to integrate what you're learning as we go along yeah. and showing you what we're doing? And I think if you can get that understanding of this is actually a benefit to you also. Yeah, That's a good that point. That you start understanding. And the other thing is, is uh, some of it is came out of the Dan Vicente thing. Vicente? Vicente? How does he Vicente. Goes? The County, yeah. Which is not don't only give forecasts. I, I'm, I'm really strong on using forecast rather than predictions or plans. But when you give a forecast, give a probability yes. um, mm-hmm. around that and, and you. say, you know what, in a month, you know, this is this is a three quarter roadmap in one quarter. We're going to revisit it, you know. And if you ask them, if you ask them, I did a I did a session with a enterprise level architects at Chevron. I mean, these are guys were men and women were scary smart. And they were asked to do a five a five year roadmap, and they were taking it seriously because that's what they were asked for. And I said to them finally, as they were, uh, we all do diving into deeply. I said, let me just ask you. Let's step back for a sec. Let's imagine the future. We have finished our five year plan. Okay one year from now, how much did that plan do you think will have survived? Mm-hmm. And hardly anybody thought much of it would have survived. Mm-hmm. And I said, okay, we need to do what we've been asked to do, but I want you to back off on your concern of getting year two correct. Because no matter what we do today, you very smart people are going to learn new things and change this plan. So let's give what we're, let's give the people what we're asking, what we've been, are asking us, what we've been asked for, but let's frame it, in the right context and let's ensure them that we're gonna take their learning as we go forward and change these things.
2: Yeah, what what you said, Ben, reminds me of a of a backlog, right? A product roadmap, um, if, if somebody's asking for a two-year or five-year product roadmap, it might not be a bad idea to spitball something, right? And, and put it out there, um, but to your point, are we going to spend a lot of, a lot of time and effort that costs money up front at the beginning of that five years to make sure year two is correct. Right. It's not, it's not, it's not that, you know, predicting what's going to happen out in the future is a terrible idea. It's if, if you take those predictions as cast in stone and you put a ton of effort into, you know, doing deep dives and, and solidifying things that are, that are ultimately going to turn out to be waste, right? It, it, it kind of reminded me of something you said earlier, Ben. Is product roadmaps are kind of similar to estimates to me in a sense that estimates themselves aren't inherently bad. It's the decisions we make based on those ep- estimates yeah. that can be problematic, right? Sure. Especially the alliance, in the ver- yeah. yeah, and sure. especially in the very very beginning, the infancy of some endeavor when we know the least. Yeah, and we ask somebody, "How long do you think it will take to implement this?" And they give you a, a, a number, right? Now I'm I'm a big fan of Monte Carlo, right, where you give these probability distributions, but a lot of team, a lot of organizations don't really know how to do Monte Carlo. And so they don't use it. So they go, "Hey, software development team, how long?" And they say six months. And it could be a year. It could be two months. But it's the it's the insistence on making very rigid and financially impactful decisions based on that very limited knowledge that that that's the problem, right? So I don't really see a problem with with creating a product roadmap. Um, but one of the problems I do see with product roadmaps is they should be a result of you know collaborating with the customer and most often they're a result of the hippo, right? Highest paid person's opinion um, and not much collaboration with the customer. And that's when things can go awry. Go go go
0: ahead. I was going to ask, has anyone here been a a product owner? And I haven't been a product owner, uh, at least not like in a full-time role, but I was a product manager back in my pre-scrum days. And I think that if you can... If if any of us have been, we can kind of talk, yes, when I was. My biggest issues were this. Instead of talking about them, kind of – does anyone have that PO experience?
3: I do. Uh, I was yeah. both uh – I mean, I spent a lot of time doing requirements analysis and creating yep. the XRDs, you know, the MRD, PRD, ERDs. Oh,
0: I remember those. And I was in and, the airline industry doing this yeah, stuff. <laughs> and yeah. I, yeah.
3: I oh, passed nice. my PMP test because I really bought into work breakdown structures and EDP yeah. and, and all of that stuff. And it just seemed to make sense. I mean, I came out of aerospace where the waterfall was kind of, if not invented, perfected. Right. And it just it made perfect sense. I mean... You know, we'd write the waterfall with the big number 10 and any any place in that waterfall where you find a problem, it would have been 10 times cheaper to find it in the step before that. And, and by the way, that still holds in what we do. That's why Agile, I think, works better. Listen, all this stuff is fractal scrum. It's very easy to explain to people in scrum, we're going to make a two-week plan and we may not hit it, Right. And then you go to quarterly planning and people think that's cast in stone. We're going to do that. Yeah. When in actuality, if you know anything <laughs> about probability, your, your probability of failure just keeps getting multiplied yeah. each sprint, right? If we can't yeah. predict one sprint with 100%, then how can we do that? And, and the idea, I mean, this is something that SAFE does fairly well. They have Kanbans at each of the three levels, right? The portfolio level, the program level, and the team level and you fill that Kanban with WIP limits and you don't put too much stuff in there and you don't put too much stuff in there by not over um, uh, and analyzing things that aren't going to make it into that Kanban. So there, you know, when we do refinement, everybody understands you only refine about one and a half to two sprints worth of stories, right? So maybe we'll only refine one to two PIs worth of features and maybe we'll only refine one to two whatever's Of epics and do that kind of stuff. And if you put it in that mind that, you know, the stuff at the bottom way, I I loved it at at Chevron. I used to kid them that I had learned 983 new acronyms, but I gave them a new acronym, which was Yagni, Y-A-G-N-I. You ain't going to need it. Or or Yagi, Y-A-G-G-I, you ain't going to get it. All the stuff all the stuff down here, I mean, if this stuff is a year out, are you not going to have a better idea in the next year that's going to go up above it? So please, 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 let's not spend a lot of time down here to do that. Yeah. Hey, another thing on the product owner that, that really worked well in the last four months when I was at Chevron was getting them to understand um, incremental delivery, value delivery. I mean, I, I, I would talk to them about WizGIF qualitatively, not quantitatively. And just say, here are three reasons why you might want to do something before you do something else. And the idea of my my I need these six things on a dashboard. Okay, well, would there be benefit? First of all, are all those equal? No, we'll probably use the first two more than the others. How about if we give you the first two in a third of the time and release it and give you that? How do Mm -hmm. or how would you like to see the first one and see if we're doing it right? So you don't even have to say Scrum or safe or Agile or Mm -hmm. any of this stuff. You just talk to them in terms of releasing value and that Larry is getting into the PO the product owner program owners mind
2: this is really good Beth. I I also think one of the problems is uh, some one of you said this already um, that if we think about the the role of a product owner in the context of scrum it, it's it's very it's very um, it's not simple. I shouldn't say so. I'm looking mm-hmm. for a different word. It's, it, the 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 domain of what they need to do is 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 pretty narrow. It might have been, it might have been Craig Larman, or maybe it was Craig Larman quoting someone else. But they said the product owner has two jobs: right, communicate requests and prioritize them. And um, I think uh, I forget who said it earlier, but somebody said that these product owners are typically just kind of spread out all across the organization. They're not only like, their product owner or their program manager and, you know, probably doing 15 other things. They probably have a bunch of budgeting tasks that they have to deal with and, and, you know, all sorts of administrative overhead and things like that. So I also wonder if we've bloated the role of a product owner (laughs) and, and, and those two core things, communicating requests from the customer and prioritizing them might be, uh, you know, suffering at the expense of all that other stuff. Interesting. Mm -hmm.
3: Don't even go in. Don't don't even go into when you make the product owner and the scrum master the same person. Yeah, yeah exactly. Oh no, exactly.
1: please let's avoid that. I did. I did that once. I
3: was a scrum master, and my product owner uh, left left her position. And while we were hiring another one, I was the product owner also. And I had been a really good scrum master, and I became a really good product owner and a really terrible scrum master.
2: Yeah, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Yep. It goes, it, and that goes back to just plain old context switching, right? Yeah. Um, I, I saw a quote. I saw a quote recently that said something, and I forget where it was from. Uh, I think it was from uh, that guy Milner, who's now working with Mike Cohn as a co-trainer. I forget his first name. He, I think, he said something like, "A really good Scrum Master can probably handle two or three teams, but a great one can handle one."
3: Yeah. <laughs> well, the, the, in the product owner, it's not only context switching. The product owner and the Scrum Master should have a very positive tension between them. Yes. You yes. know, yes. I mean, I, the Scrum Master was complaining that the product owner was constantly trying to get too much done. And I, and I said, that's, that's the product owner's job, that's yeah. her job, yeah. you know, that doesn't mean she gets what she wants, but, yeah. but you, you want her to be asking for the maximum value she can deliver. Absolutely. your job is to put, is to let make sure that the team has a say into what you do mm-hmm. which is why you can't do both jobs you just can't yeah, yeah
1: exactly it's really good, it's
0: good you know now that i'm teaching scrum classes i teach i really want to focus on the scrum master track is what the scrum alliance mm-hmm. calls it so i want to teach those classes and convey the idea to the scrum masters put your own mask on first before well that's a good point uh, helping others and and like you said that you both all, of you, all three of you had said the product owner's role is the most important role. It is something that is spread out throughout the organization. Again, going back to my time as a product manager, I saw that. And I'm just thinking if if a product owner has to do a tenth of what I had to do as a product manager, they've got a lot of work to do. Um, so I, I feel like I'm not capable yet of of really kind of giving it my all and teaching the best possible product owner classes out there. There's other really excellent teachers um, doing such a great job already that I ain't going there, but it was great listening to you guys talk about it. Yeah. So,
2: Hey, I, I have a, I have a question about that, about product ownership. Um, because my experiences have never led me to a very clear answer. Uh, it's actually two questions is product manager and product owner synonymous or is there a hierarchy that product owners report to product managers or who then report to portfolio managers it's always seemed very kludgy depending on where on where you go um, what's the, I, what's, the, what's the what's the consultant
3: answer to that everybody yeah. <laughs> it depends it depends, yeah. Yeah.
2: depends yeah. actually if you if you're doing yeah
3: if you're doing safe there are very clear delineations between those yeah. two jobs yeah.
2: yeah.
3: if you're not then you're making up the title. If you're doing Scrum, then the only title that's there is product owner.
2: Yeah. Um, but is but isn't that a isn't that a problem? Where Ben, this goes. This kind of ties in a little bit with your uh, favorite job descriptions uh, <laughs> posts, right? Don't most organizations sort of either. Either make up titles or make up responsibilities for traditional titles, or bastardize them and things yeah. like that. I mean, I you know I've worked in plenty of places that had people with the role of product owner, and what they did looked very little like what Scrum says a product owner should do. Well, so, I mean,
3: if you think if you know if you're ta- if you're on a te- if you're on a place that's changing from one changing into a Scrum methodology.
2: Yeah
3: the people that they had that were called product owners are probably business owners. I mean, they're probably two levels up. Yeah. You know, I own this product and yeah. I'm defining what it is and I'm way up here. I'm not down at the team level. Um, uh, the, I, I like to think I'm, you know, from my old programming days, I'm, I like to think of it as an API, right? The API, the, the team needs a backlog, if you're you know if you're doing something that works from a backlog Kanban or Scott, the team needs a backlog and I can be agnostic as to how that backlog is filled is it filled by one person is it filled by a team of people is there a singular product manager who filters those things down to a bunch of teams so within the context of the of the environment that you've you've been dropped into um, the way you fill that team's backlog from whatever you call them, BAs, product owners, mm-hmm. product managers, epic owners, business owners, <clears throat> shouldn't shouldn't matter. But the way that you do it should there should be some way of describing how that team gets their yeah, gets okay. their backlog. Yep. This is this is on a much bigger theme that that I've been struggling with, which is calling things transformations when we're dropping into environments that have been doing things for a while. Yeah. and we're not transforming them. We're trying to adapt yeah. what they're doing to the way they should be doing. Excellent. Yeah. Um I have been, time to talk about that whole thing. Vic? we. we <laughs> uh, <laughs> I I mean, only another hour and a half. It's it's yeah. up to
0: you guys when you want to get, no. get done with this. We could drag this out for three episodes. <laughs> I think. Uh, real quick, um, EBG Consulting—that's the website for um, Ellen. Oh gosh, Larry, you can pronounce this better than me. Gotts Diner. Oh, yeah. and, and she writes about, uh, in Product Agility, she talks about the, um, she has kind of this diagram um, where product ownership yeah. is on one side with delivery and product management is on one side with discovery. Mm-hmm. And Roman Pichler talks about this too. So yeah. there's there's plenty out there. But yeah, I'd agree with what you guys said, how I see them as maybe two sides of the same coin. Oh,
3: but Larman and Les will say, get the developers as close to the customers you can, which yeah. is another one of those left side, right side of the classroom, yeah. which yeah. is, yeah, yeah, I I'm there. There are people in the develop de- development team. I would want to stay, keep as far away from the customer <laughs> as I possibly yeah. could. Yeah.
2: It, 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 it's a, it's a great point, Ben. Uh, uh, what Larman talks about the development team being as close to the customer as possible. There's a, do you guys know? Do you guys follow this guy on Twitter, Alan Holub? Uh, he's a good follow on Twitter. Anyway, uh, he talks yeah. about uh, he's 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 got a statement where he says, "If your customer can't walk through the door of your corporation and touch and feel your product, you're going to have a hard time being agile." And then he goes on to say, "It's very hard to walk in the front door of a corporation, right?" <laughs> yeah. so, um, so that's that's kind of his cynical way of saying that large corporations probably aren't going to be very effective with these transformations as ben said
0: but did you have two questions you said or did you ask both of them and i missed
2: no they were both i asked i i asked are we seeing are we seeing product owner and product manager being used synonymously and uh the second part was is is there an implied hierarchy product owner product manager right. portfolio and so forth
0: yeah. right on uh, well then, what do you think, dear listeners? Um, do you have any questions for us? Use the hashtag on Twitter. Ask Agile Coffee. Any and all of the notes that I have scribbled down as these guys are talking will be shared on this show's uh, website. Uh, the web page for this is at uh, www.agilecoffee.com/episode69. So here we are, um, toward the end of another fantastic. Uh, Gosh, looks like over an hour now that we've been talking, but it has not been wasted on me. Hopefully you guys also got value out of this and I see you nodding your heads. Um let's do this again, guys. Yeah. Uh, one more time I want to thank Ben, Larry and Chris for being here. Thanks a lot, guys.
3: Yeah, thank, thank you, you Vic.
0: Thank you. And uh dear listeners, you know where to check out for the show notes and you know how to contact us. So all I ask now is that you go back, stay safe and enjoy your coffee with friends.